All right. <clears throat> Hello, I'm Max Temkin. And I'm Patrick Klupik this week. I've decided to settle. And this is episode five of Rewatch Podcast. This week we're watching episode five of Lost, House of the Rising Sun. This episode is sponsored by MailChimp. MailChimp is the best mailing list software in the world. We use it for Cards Against Humanity. It's used by over six million people and businesses, including uh, us. Uh, and pretty much all of the projects that I work on uh, are thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring this episode. Uh, and this week our guest is Hunter Wade, a Lost superfan who actually became an extra during uh, the sixth season of Lost. So we'll hear from him about what it was like uh, working on the show. Um, how you doing, Patrick? Good. Sun, gin, a lot of heart, a lot of emotions. This was a good episode. I've, I remembered liking this one, and then I watched it, and I liked it. It's, you know, if you, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, not to get too deep into the episode just yet, but that, you know, Kate as a character isn't that interesting, and you have this very, we have a lot of these very character-centric episodes. We're getting a lot of, you know, introduction to these characters, and like Jin and Sun are immediately so fascinating because you have sort of a sense of what the relationship is. Obviously, there's a tension, and you don't know a lot about what's been going on in their lives. And this one just has, you know, not a lot ends up really happening on the island, but the, like the the flashback is so rich in this in the way that Locks was so rich uh, that you're completely compelled to watch from start to finish just because these characters and their relationship is so interesting. Yeah, uh, I mean, we've we've talked about this like almost every week of the podcast, but I'm such a sucker for the anytime when sort of like the ancillary characters or the side characters like suddenly become you kind of learn the information about them that makes them super interesting, and they do such a great job of that with Sun and Jin. Like they almost immediately, there's just so much in this episode that completely flips the script on them, and you you really, um, I, I mean, at least I, I came away with this episode from this episode completely changing my mind on them as characters and just being really invested in them and and their you know their future journey on the island and their relationship and um all of the sort of mysteries and intrigue surrounding them Um, yeah and it's it's also one of the the flashback plots in general that i think really plays out in a in an interesting way consistently and there's just so much there like you want to know like what was Jin doing on his jobs and like why did he come back covered in blood in the one flashback yep um, you want to find out more about Son and what her uh, life was like and how this is going to play out, that she can speak English. Like, there's just, they set up so much in this episode that, that comes to bear over the next, um, you know, the rest of the first season and really, like, throughout the whole series that, that makes them just, like, anytime you get a Son and Jin episode, you know it's going to be pretty good. I think they, they, they really only get maybe one or two a season, though. I mean, they're not... They're one of those characters that they dole out, like, very effectively and very efficiently so yeah. that when you get one of those episodes there's a lot of meat to the episode as opposed to a lot of the other characters that kind of get you know sort of torn apart by just being so central and thus them having to focus on them uh, so often uh, but uh in terms of like other stuff that's going on with with the podcast i definitely want to mention because i mentioned this on twitter uh, was that if anyone that's listening like you know has any like if you can like, just dig back if you can think of any reason you or someone you might know might have any connection to the show or even in just weird ways, right? Like, it doesn't have to be that, like, you somehow know, like, Jorge Garcia. Although, if you know Jorge Garcia, feel free to, to let him know that he should come on the show. But, you know, for example, like, you know, this, this you know, Hunter Wade, who was a, a, you know, an extra uh, in season six or were, 
you know, hoping to talk to some other guys, some people that worked on like the extras for, you know, various DVDs, uh, editions of the show, uh, you know, stuff like that. Like if you have a connection to the show or had someone that had a connection to the show, like we want to talk to you. Like obviously talking to the actors would be uh, super interesting and cool, but you know, I think getting into the weeds is also really fascinating. So I've been tracking that stuff down. I've got some people I've got my eye on and we've got a bunch of interviews lined up that'll kind of get doled out over the course of the season. Um, but again, if anyone has any ideas in that direction, make sure you know reach out and uh, send us an email. Uh, was it re- rewatchpodcast at right at gmail dot com? Yep, rewatchpodcast at gmail dot com. And also, if people have uh, suggestions for guests, like you know, if you you know watch Giant Bomb and there's someone in particular that you'd like to to have come on, you know, make sure and let us know because we're going to try and uh, you know not just make it you know sort of a you know, some sort of lost connected guest every week, you know, kind of like we had Jana on and, you know, and some other folks. So if there's yeah, not, people not, that you'd like to hear. Not not to be like pejorative about it, um, but like I, I love having the weirder guests on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Because like, you know, to some extent, like I've already heard what a lot of the main, the central figures in the history of Lost have to say about the show. And, you know, I also don't know how candid they would really be even if they were on the podcast but we've been getting these amazing stories from people sort of on the fringes of lost and who are involved on the outsides of it and, and that's why i think like the extras in particular i think yeah. could be so interesting because they get to observe the show and you know in you know hunter's case where you know he was a fan before being out like I yeah can, can you fathom that no. if you're just like a fan of the show and then you just get to be on the set during it, the final it's, it's season it's like going to a baseball <laughs> game and one of the players is injured and they're like we need someone like, get, <laughs> get down get down here it's like it's like it never it's like it's like a thing you dream about in elementary school when you're supposed to be learning math or something like it's just uh, like it never even crossed my mind i mean obviously yeah. you know i you know zero uh, experience in acting but i don't know i could you you look at some of those extras and some of those shots i could fucking do it yeah <laughs> Like, I could have been a I could have been a guy in the you'd beach. be on Lost. People would be like, "Who's this thirteen year old kid that we've never seen before <laughs> in, the, in the Survivors?" Like a skinny Hurley flashback. Come yeah. on. Um, all right, let's do some follow up. Um, so this was an email from Jordan. Um, Jordan says, "In the years since Lost ended in 2010, we've seen tons of TV shows that try to emulate Lost's formula for success." My question for you is, have you found any shows post Lost that fill the void that the greatest show ever left in your life? Uh, I would say that this is Jordan saying this. I would say that person of interest is near Lost's level of quality, and the mythology behind the show is very interesting. Hope to hear your thoughts, uh, Patrick. Anything for you that you felt sort of fit into the Lost-sized hole in your heart? Not post-Lost, because I think Battlestar Galactica, which we've talked about, overlapped with Lost. Yeah. Um, did during... which ended first? Do you remember? Ah, uh, now I'm gonna have to look. It's um... good radio. Yeah, but you you look it up while okay. I continue to talk. Okay. But yeah, Battlestar Galactica definitely, you know, if not influenced by Lost, you know, felt thematically similar in terms of its story structure. You know, and we mentioned that before in a previous podcast where it's a strong set of very interesting characters with an overarching, like, really deep, rich mythology. But the only reason, for example, uh, without getting into, you know, when you, f- you know, who exactly they end up being, you know, a big part of Battlestar Galactus, who are the Cylons? Like, who are these embedded human-robot hybrids that are within, you know, the, the last remnants of civilization? The only reason those moments are so powerful later in the show when you find out, like, major characters you've come to know in a completely different context are one of these creatures, these machines, is because you care so much about those characters. And that's exactly the formula that Lost uses, and it's precisely the formula that Battlestar Galacta uses. And I can't think... 
You know, I mean, I've loved shows and gotten obsessed. You know, Breaking Bad's probably Game of Thrones are probably the shows that I've gotten as sort of I have to be there when it's on, the time it's on. Uh, I can't miss it. I'm super afraid of getting spoiled. Uh, so I've watched those shows with the same sort of religious devotion. But, yeah, you know, other than, you know, reading maybe little write-ups, you know, from like Alan Steppenwall is kind of the only guy I read for uh, sort of my TV analysis uh, and maybe Tim Goodwin a little bit. I don't, I don't, I haven't gotten as deep down a rabbit hole like the way I got down with Lost. I just, I think, and a lot of it's because shows just aren't really constructed that way anymore. Post-Lost, a bunch of shows tried to be Lost in which they put the mythology first. There was, I think, in his email, he had uh, in the yeah there one, were he he, he had mentioned all of a shows, bunch of shows, yeah. and, and you know you don't have to go very far to find uh, a a car crash of shows that started with a central mystery and then didn't go anywhere because to come up with a mystery that's interesting enough is extremely difficult, and that's not what Lost did either. You know, Lost had a had a core mystery but built characters uh, around it and. So, yeah, I can't think of a show that I've loved on, on the same – for the reasons I like Lost, I don't think I've, I've found one in the same way. I mean, I've heard good things, a lot of good things about Person of Interest. I sort of wrote it off because it was a CBS show. That's – I'm not employed by CBS yeah. or anything. Um, but, uh, it's, but it's – you know, that one was created by uh, Christopher Nolan's brother, has Michael Emerson, uh, who becomes a character on Lost at some point. Um so there, there is some some lost stuff going on there, and I've I've heard it's good, but I don't know nothing about that show has necessarily captured my attention beyond the pilot. I would say for me, there hasn't been there hasn't been anything as there's not been anything exactly parallel with Lost, but there's been things that I liked about Lost that I found in other shows. Mm. So I've taken a really deep dive into like Breaking Bad when it was on. So like um, seeing, you know, reading the recaps every week, looking for the little hints and the the hidden, you know, Easter eggs in every episode. I think there were like people that if you wanted to have the depth of Lost of like looking at every frame and thinking about every shot and what is why was it shot this way? What does it mean? I think Breaking Bad was actually better than Lost in, in a lot of ways. Like you really could like look at the way that a scene was constructed in Breaking Bad and, and get all get all of this great meaning out of it. Well, it was different, right? So, like, Lost, it wasn't about necessarily the framing of the shot. It was what was in the shot, right? Like, right. it was it was a well, photo on a desk. I mean, it was it was a, it, you know... And, you know, yeah, sometimes Lost would, like, you know, deliberately pan over something because they're like, hey, we want you guys to look at that, wink, wink. Whereas, like, in Breaking Bad, it's a much more dramatic, thematic, you know... Uh, reason that they're framing this shot away. Right, and and it was interesting because I think Breaking Bad is a much deeper show than Lost. Like yeah. the, It was a much more intellectual show. It asked more of the audience, piecing it together, um, and the way that they would put clues in it, like you said, I, I think that's probably a, a way... I mean... It's a it's a tricky I don't know the right word it's like a more maybe an, a more artistic use of like like a visual clues like to not like literally have the clue like a book right. that a guy's reading in the shop but like it's the <laughs> way that it's composed yeah but ultimately they were clues that just told you about the characters they there was no greater mystery in Breaking I mean as much as people wanted to read a mystery into that show it wasn't there um, True Detective I took a pretty deep dive on we've talked about that in a previous episode and, and that also you know very very similar to Lost for me if I wanted it to be a mystery and it wasn't a mystery it was uh, more of a thriller and that was also that, that show is, is really interesting and I don't know if we touched on this point in the previous podcast where 
that show was a very like that was written for an analytical TV audience. Yeah. That show was written to hoodwink you. It embedded all sorts of crazy stuff for you to have fun with and analyze. And, you know, without getting too much into, you know, you know, where the show goes at the end just says like, eh, like, no, like, right. It was all there. It was fun. But the creator was in some ways saying like, Hey, sometimes you guys, you kind of overthink this. Sometimes a story is just a story. Yeah. And it was great. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, absolutely. I don't mean hindsight. hindsight, I thought it was brilliant. Like it was one of the meta reasons that show was really fun that I bet if you were to, you know, that was one of those shows that if you watch True Detective on Blu-ray, weren't reading the write-ups, weren't watching all of the theories going around, it, you probably wouldn't pick up on that you stuff know what, as much. You know what would be crazy is if they do see, you know, when they do season two of True Detective, they're going to like, it's going to be a completely new cast, new story, new location. It's just like the name and the aesthetic is going to carry over to like a right. new mystery or whatever. But it'd be really crazy if they do the same thing and then in the end it turns out that it's like Cthulhu or it's like <laughs> some sort of like it's aliens or something. People will be like, what the fuck? I didn't see that coming. Oh, that Damn, that's, the long that's really troll. good. That's really troll. good. <laughs> um, see, this is where I get myself into trouble is like I think of that and I'm like, oh, it'd be so clever if they did that. You wouldn't and then, want that though. No, but I would. It would be so clever if they did that. It would be so devious. And the fact is like nothing they do will be as clever as the thing that I make up to amuse myself. Yeah. Let me, let me rephrase that. Nothing will be as clever to me as the thing that sure. I make up to amuse myself. Um, but the thing that I, I would say like I think uh, has most – come close to filling my lost uh, itch is the uh, Song of Ice and Fire series, the books mm-hmm. that are the basis for Game of Thrones. So I don't actually, I, I have very, I have mixed feelings on the Game of Thrones a TV series. I think it's like beautiful and very proficient and well done. Great interpretation of the books. But I think it lacks a lot of what I love about the books, and it lacks a lot of the like depth and the nuance. And it's I find it a little bleak and nihilistic because um, it's like just the action scenes and the killing and the nihilism and the violence. Um, but the books are really, really incredible. They're a great read. They're super funny. Like I actually appreciate that Lost is is funny, and yeah. that's the thing that people don't remember about it. But like. Lost is great at ratcheting up the tension and then get and then letting a little bit out with like a, a laugh or a funny line or like a great Sawyer line. Game of Thrones books are hilarious. They're really funny. They're really well paced. And if you want to go down that rabbit hole of like, in addition to hearing a great story and great characters and and getting all the perspectives on the story that you get from the way the books are written, um, you can go online and you can start reading the little clues and the fan theories and the things that are in the books, which. The difference between Game of Thrones and Lost is the mysteries in Game of Thrones are actually there. People are finding like stuff that's actually borne out in the later books. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to build your little corkboard with the string connecting all the pictures, <laughs> where you like have your theories, it's totally there in Game of Thrones. Like I get off on that so hard. I saw this is super inside baseball for the two viewers who saw this, but there was like a YouTube series this week uh, going around or last week that was like about the hidden agenda of the Martell family, which is not even a part of the TV show at all. It's this total side show in the books, but like, man, that was so good. It's not, that's not true. That's just some crazy guy's theory, but it was so pleasing. Like that's the kind of shit that I miss really hard from Lost. We were, we were ta- actually talking about this on the on the roof of your place about when fans are able to concoct really enjoyable outlandish theories that also are just logically consistent enough with what's already laid out by the author. Like that that stuff's incredibly fun. 
Um, yeah. and, and it sounds like there's a little bit of that. I guess True Detective is probably the closest thing in terms of what I did with Lost because, you know, again, without wanting to say too much about True Detective, we haven't seen it, but The Yellow King, right? Like there is mm-hmm. a book that everyone started reading that was referenced in the show, which is also something that people did in Lost all the time. Yeah. Like, in sure, which I something was looking that up, I was on the Cthulhu wiki watching uh, True Detective, and I was, I mean, I went down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I guess that's the closest I I've come to. I feel like an idiot to. now, because <laughs> it's so clear that it, like, there was no reason to have done that. But. Uh, that's a good question, though. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed that one. Um, all right, this one is an email from uh, Lauren who pointed out, uh, so we were talking about that in Lost, there's certain directors um, who, when they have an episode, you know it's going to be a pretty a pretty big episode. Jack Bender is um, the one in Lost, yeah. Jack Bender is the director, and then for writers on Lost, you can tell the same thing. Like usually, if it's a Cues and Lindelof episode, yeah. But to the two of them writing it, then you know it's a big like, you're mythology for, you're plot in dump. For a treat. I mean, the big the two big ones that they co-wrote this season were um, the second Lock episode of the season, which which is about halfway through the season, yep. two thirds through the season. And the season finale, which Exodus are, Part One and Exodus yeah, which are, Part Two, which are ju- what's the lock one? You know, off the top of your head. No, I can I can look really, really quick. I'm disappointed in us. I know, but uh, yeah, you know those episodes. I mean, those and those are the best episodes in the season, in, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, um, but so Lauren up says uh, wrote in to say, uh, in case you care. Uh, Buffy and Angel and pretty much all of Joss Whedon's series um, were a similar instance of like where show writers and directors for specific episodes were very important. So the ones for Joss Whedon are David Fury, uh, Marty, Marty Noxon, who I actually don't know, Jane Espenson and Tim Minear, who I know for, for writing outstanding episodes of Firefly. Um, but yeah, that's, that's true in, in so many of the shows that I love that like they're characterized by like signature directors coming in, signature writers coming in and, and doing a really special episode, a very special episode, as they say in the commercials. And we'll have a uh, spectacular yeah. David Fury, canon or non-canon in the Lost Timeline, doesn't matter. Even if the story we've been told is untrue, you're going to want to hear it. It's spoiler city, but... Yeah, so we've been doing... So last week we did some... Uh, um, this was the other big topic, uh, was tons and tons of people wrote us uh, with feedback about our spoiler chat. Deus Ex Machina. Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, how did we forget that? Um, tons and tons of people wrote us with um, information about our spoiler chat, which is like Patrick and I stayed after the theme music last week, and we talked about spoilers for the show and the, the big mysteries of the show for a little bit. Um, we obviously we can't really read too much follow up about the spoiler chat because without spoiling the show, obviously. Um, but if you stick around this week after the theme music, we've got uh, a, a little bit of uh, spoiler chat about this episode. And then Patrick got this email that I actually he has not told re- me refu- all of it. I ref- I only gave him the setup, uh, and 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 the little bit I'll tease um, is, is just that th- there was someone that just happened to be at a dinner party because of a friend of a friend. That had uh, of someone that worked on Lost, David Fury, who wrote uh, several of the episodes in uh, season one, some of the, uh, the really good ones as well, uh, and uh, he shared some inside information at this cocktail party uh, about Lost that I think will be really fascinating as just food for thought, even if it's not true, but also it sounds completely plausible when you think about a show that had not been renewed quite yet, that they didn't know where it was going. And what sort of outlandish ideas they could come up with to explain what was going on. So stick around after that. We'll we'll kind of walk through that. Cool, um, Patrick. Do you want to talk about our interview for this week? 
Uh, yeah. Uh, this week, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we've got um, Hunter Wade, who was uh, a lost uh, super fan who happened to be in Hawaii, uh, and then uh, managed to become an extra uh, during Lost. He actually managed to become several extras, which sounds like that might actually uh, kind of be the case with a lot of folks who end up working on Lost. You just kind of find your way uh, into a number of different roles. He had a uh, wrestling match with Matthew Fox. Uh, I don't want to say too much about exactly what he did. Um, and uh, so, you know, if we're not going to talk, you know, explicit plot details of what was going on necessarily uh, on, on the shooting of the show. But if a location on the island is something you would want to not know about, then it's probably worth uh, maybe skipping the interview or coming back to it at a later date. Um, but we'll try and keep it uh, pretty light and obviously won't get too explicit. But, uh, you know, fair warning if you're trying to remain completely pure uh, about uh, about Lost in general. But uh, uh, thanks to Hunter Wade for, for reaching out. Super appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to, to chat with me and, and get in touch. I know it's probably an odd, random request, but um, I, I definitely Oh, it's super cool. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I love the opportunity to, uh, you know, these are big accomplishments for somebody, <laughs> really. And, and you know, like um, among my friends and family and my fans that I have, I'm a musician. So the the thrill of Lost has died down in my immediate circle. So for something to pop back and for, you know, to have an opportunity to do something as a result of that accomplishment is totally cool, man. It's really a nice opportunity. So let's start from sort of square one. You know, how does one go from being a fan of Lost to being on Lost? <laughs> how how exactly did you end up on the island? Um, well, okay, so I, I wound up on the island because I was doing infomercials. I was doing a live infomercial. Remember the ShamWow guy, the ShamWow commercials, and it soaks up all that water? Oh, yeah. I would do um, infomercials live, and I was a really good performer for this company and um, had really great sales. So they sent me to Hawaii as a perk. And when I got to Hawaii, I, whoa, I realized that, um, Lost was filmed there. I didn't know that prior. I mean, I loved the show, but I had no idea that it was shot in Hawaii. I thought it was a Hollywood thing. And, um, I've always been a big, uh, you know, I've always been really into the mysteries of life, you know, like what, how, how do things, how do things work? I always wanted, you know, I was that kid in class who, when we had the option of asking questions or getting our homework done in class, I asked the questions, uh-huh. right? So I was always I wondered about the how of things. And I had um I was really into metaphysics at the time and I had watched The Secret and I had taken a course by a company called uh PSI Seminars. They're one of the best personal development companies in the world. And they taught some tools about visualization and basically their shtick is, hey, look, you can have anything you can imagine. And your commitment, if you're willing, will dictate the outcome. So bring that around to, I get to Hawaii, find out that Lost is shot there. So I started using these tools like visualization techniques and um, really playing. It was like I was a kid playing Cowboys and Indians, but I was playing I'm on Lost. (laughs) And I did everything to the T, just like they said you were supposed to do, you know, except I was actually taking action. I was out and about meeting people in Honolulu and whatever. You weren't just in a a hotel room going, I'm going to be in Lost, I'm going to be in Lost. I had, I had been living there for about three months, four months at this time, and I'd been doing these infomercials in malls. And I didn't know anybody in the entertainment industry there. I didn't know any, anybody in the TV industry. However, I did. I was just playing. I'm going to be in Lost. I'm going to be in Lost. And, and I would laugh at myself because 
there was this point where um, the, the way I was playing had become as real as the reality. So I got started to get, to get lost in the fantasy of being on the TV show. And I, I was like, okay, am I insane or what? Well, lo and behold, after I had been visualizing it for a month or so, my heart was really in it. I was like a, a little kid completely wrapped up in this fantasy world that I had created. And I was really in lost as far as I was concerned. Well, I was walking down the street one day and some guy says, hey, you. And I was like, okay, this is creepy. I'm in the middle of, you know, Waikiki and some random guy is saying, hey, you. And so I politely stopped and struck up a conversation with him. We talked for a minute and he said, listen, have you heard of a show called Lost? Oh, man. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm like, um, <laughs> hmm. And he said, well, listen, I'm the, I'm the costume designer for the show. And I designed a new costume for this really menacing character that's going to be in the final season. And I haven't seen it on anybody yet, but you're tall. You're kind of big. You're scary. Be really great. If you're willing to go down to the set, would you be willing to go down to the set oh and just God. try it on? And I was like, Oh, let me check my schedule. Uh... <laughs> well, let me just burn up my schedule. Right. Exactly. So I did, I went down there. Um, his assistant met me at the gate. They walked me and they put me in this crazy costume. I sent you a picture actually. Right of me in the costume. And um, they brought me over to the casting directors. And as a thank you, they had my picture taken by the casting director. And they said, yeah, we'll use you later on in the season. Well, in my head, in my imagination, I was interacting with Matthew Fox and Evangeline <laughs> Lilly and Jorge Garcia. I was hanging out with those guys. And like I was featured on the show. And I was on the show for the whole final season. So weeks go by after this first incident of being on the set. and I get a call from the casting directors and they're like, listen, we're doing the opening, the opening pieces from mm -hmm. season six. And if you haven't seen season six yet, don't worry. It's not much of a spoiler. Um, it's uh, at the beginning of the season. There's a scene that takes place at LAX. So I was a pedestrian at LAX. Oh, wow. So, and you, got, so you got to do a lot of different things. You weren't, you weren't a just a part of the, the temple set. You were also a part of uh, some other stuff. Interesting. Some other stuff. And that's where it gets really bizarre. Because in the entertainment industry, um, in, in TV and film, continuity is a really important thing, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you see one guy over here playing Bob, well, you can't see the same guy later playing Joe because, you know, it ruins the continuity. It's like if somebody's hair is even messed up from one scene to the next, people notice it. That door was open a second ago, and now it's shut. Ha, ha, ha. Well, there's, yeah, there's half full, whole, now it's empty. whole websites dedicated to pointing out continuity errors. Exactly, right? So the fact that I had played a pedestrian – in the first episode of season six meant I couldn't be in any more of the season. I couldn't be in the show anymore. Right. And the casting director specifically told me that they're like, I hope you had fun. It was really great. Glad we got to have you here. Bye. And I thought to myself, huh? Well, we'll see. Cause in my head, I'm not done with the show yet. So I didn't react to them telling me I was done. And I just, I went home. Well, lo and behold, two weeks later, they called me and they said, Hey, listen, the costume designer threw a fit cause you're not in his costume. He wants you to be in that role. Now, the, the problem is the problem is that you've already played this other character. So we're going to have to put a turban on your head and make you look different. And, you know, you've got to be willing to become a union actor, get paid union wages, and you have to be willing to be in the show for the whole season. Are you OK with that? I mean, that's a lot to ask. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's pretty much it. That's the story of how it came to be. And I wound up playing I wound up playing three or four different characters, which 
you know, coincidentally, I got to do all the things that I had imagined myself doing. I got to be featured, wrestle with Matthew Fox, interact with Evangeline Lilly, talk about coconut M&Ms with Jorge Garcia, <laughs> suggest great tool songs for um, Jin. Oh, uh, what's his name? Um, Daniel Day Kim. Daniel Day Kim. Yeah, Daniel. And, um, you know, it was just and Josh Holloway. Got to work with him all day one day. And it was really a riot. And it was all um, despite anything practical that we know are the rules, you know, like you're supposed to do, you have to do that checklist. You have to do ABC. You have to get a manager and get headshots. And, you know, if you play one role, you certainly won't play another role. I broke all of the rules and got to be involved with something that was a complete dream for me. And really from there, um, my life has com taken a completely different direction. So I was a singer mostly before that. And now right. I've been doing a lot more acting. So, so what was it like to actually be on that set? Because obviously when you imagine what it's going to be like on the set and then when you're actually on the set and you're talking to these people, it's, you know, you sort of have to reconcile that, oh, right, I have to act like a normal person because these, <laughs> these, these people are, are normal too. They just happen to be in they my just favorite show. Stars. Right, that's their job. It's like I don't freak out when the gas station, oh, my God, you work at 7-Eleven. Whoa. And it's the same thing, right? It's a job. And um, for me – I, I refuse to allow that I'm a freshman hanging out with a senior feeling to go away. <laughs> I won't let that go away. It's fun. You know, like it's there's something exciting about it. However, it's never been anything that I've been really reactionary to. It's never been anything that I will get giddy over here on my own. And, you know, the hair will stand up on the back of my neck. And it's really exciting because, first of all, Evangeline Lilly is gorgeous. She's super duper friendly. And to be standing four feet from her. You know, and like interacting is pretty doggone cool. Um, I found like at first it was difficult for me to grab my um, to just like stabilize myself and say anything smart. I found myself saying stupid things and really right. being like a dorky schoolgirl. Like that's totally what it was. But that really quickly went away and it all became normal. I realized by watching the way that they all interacted that it was totally normal and cool. And once I was able to remove my own agenda of like hoping I was going to make a good connection to advance my career or anything. I was able to just kind of be there and be of service and enjoy the experience completely. So how long does that, you know, the full season, what is, what does that mean in practical terms? Like how, how many months were you on, on set? Like I have to imagine you're more or less just sort of on call of like, Hey, we need you today. Like for, for whatever shot, but you know, is that a couple oh, months, man. a couple weeks? How, how long does that go? I think that I, I think that I worked from like August or September through um, February, maybe even, Maybe even the beginning of March was the last of my shooting. And um, that was really cool to watch because as the season goes on, like, you know, they're shooting. Well, gosh, the season didn't begin until February or March, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And we were filming all the way back in August, September. So they start, what is that? September, October, November, December, January, February. They start six months ahead of time. But by the time they're nearing the end of the season, they're doing those finishing shots, you know, two, three weeks before that final episode. Like it, it all catches, catches up with itself. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it was kind of interesting to see the way that the timing worked. It was also interesting to see that sometimes we could be working on one episode for two weeks. And sometimes they like an episode would, you know, I wouldn't hear a call um, for one week and we'd be working on an episode three episodes later. Does that make sense? Sure, like sure, I could sure. Be working yeah. with them for two weeks and it's one episode. I don't hear anything for a week. And then a week later I get called in and it's three episodes have gone by. So they must have completed many episodes in a short period of time while I was gone. Maybe the more they're involved, the more time it takes. 
I'm not really sure how that all panned out, but hey, you just showed um, up. That's all that matters. I just showed up, and sometimes at four o'clock in the morning to leave at eleven o'clock at night. And you know, one of the really cool things about working on a set is, um, in general, there's really good food. There's lots <laughs> of good food. So, and I'd quit my job. I had done. I mean, I did everything. Compl- I mean, it was really. I could have almost wound up off the game board because I quit the job that I had doing the infomercials. I knew in my heart that I was supposed to stay in Hawaii, but I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a job. I was offered a job making like six figures selling timeshare, but they wanted me. I had earrings at the time and I like to sport my facial hair. And I got there for my first day of work and they said, Hey, you're going to take out your earrings and shave, right? That's not a big deal. (laughs) I was like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. When you hired me and thought that I was a good salesman, I had the earrings and a beard. So no, I'm not going to shave. So they said, unfortunately, it's not going to work out. So I didn't take that job. Everybody said I was crazy. Why don't you just shave? You're going to make six figures. Well, it was one week later that I got cast on freaking lost and I got paid a bonus for having a beard. <laughs> so, <laughs> in, in, um, so things had really juxtaposed, you know, it was really a shift to right. go from homeless to then boom, right into it. And that really, you know, helped me to survive and stay out there and work in the role that I worked. Yeah, I was getting paid union wages, but it wasn't a fortune. A lot of my friends back home, I was still raising money to like release my CDs. In fact, I have a GoFundMe campaign on right now. I just recorded, um, I did a remake of What a Wonderful World and it's in every one of us to put on with some of my other, uh, my rock music that I make. I wanted to do some classics and um, I have a GoFundMe campaign right now, but at the time it was, I was using those means to raise money. I was like, you know, I want to sell a new CD. I want to, and my friends would be like, who do you think you are asking us for money? You're rich and famous now. I'm like, yeah, I make $10 an hour. Sure. I'm on a really awesome show, but I make $10 an hour. <laughs> so in, in, Which, there was double time overtime sometimes, but right. In, in, so, you know, obviously the loss was like this really secretive show, you know, you know, things would leak out, you know, stuff like that uh, would happen over the course of a season. But in terms of what you knew about what was happening, like how would you only just get here's one sheet of paper? This is all you get to know about what's occurring, you know, in, in the, the course of season six or were they a little more open uh, on the set talking about what was happening? Yeah. No, the actors didn't even know what was going on. The main characters <laughs> don't even know what's going on. It was everybody's, it was every man for himself with their best guesses as to what was going to occur. And, um, it was commonly a, a source of inspired conversation while we were on the set. Cause you know, it wasn't uncommon for there to be fans of the show working on the show as well. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it was, I mean, it's a really profound show and JJ Abrams and people that wrote the story, I think they did a really good job bringing a lot of esoteric and metaphysical concepts into the mainstream. Um, not that anything's really been done with it since then, but at least it's kind of seeds have been planted for people. So it brought up a lot of mystery on set, but our guesses were as good as anybody else's. We were always trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Did, did you have any other sort of, uh, sort of like memorable interactions on set that you sort of still think about? Um, well, I definitely remember like long conversation about M&Ms with Jorge Garcia. <laughs> we were standing at the snack table one day and um, he commented he was having some M&Ms and he commented about, you know, enjoying them or something. And I told him that he had to try the new coconut M&Ms. So we talked about coconut M&Ms for a minute. And that was a big deal because he was one of the first people that I interacted with. And then one day I got to work with Josh Holloway all day. And um, we just were, you know, walking this line through the forest, through the jungle, back and forth for three or four hours. 
And that was it. That's all we did. But we were telling jokes and, you know, like, I don't remember the jokes that were told, but we were telling some pretty uh, racy and dirty jokes <laughs> and having a good time. It was just a group of four guys, you know, like uh, three temple cronies and, and Josh Holloway. And we're all just walking through the woods all day. And every time, you know, they'd yell cut, we'd be cursing and laughing and joking around. And that was awesome. And you mentioned that you have a scene where you uh, wrestle with Matthew Fox. Now, when you suddenly realize that you're going to be wrestling with Matthew Fox, like, is that inherently terrifying? Like, you feel like you're going to hit him in the face if you if you screw this up? Like, <laughs> how exactly does one prepare for a moment like this? Well, um, so I'm going to go full disclosure here. Um, I am a, I'm a very open-minded young man in, uh-huh. in that um, I identify as bisexual. And when I was a kid in, like, just starting puberty, the show was on called Party of Five. Oh, yeah, I, and I had a huge crush. I had a huge crush on Matthew Fox <laughs> from that moment on. Yeah, that's too- oh, so wow. I was totally, totally crushing on this guy. And then he shows up as Dr. Jack in Lost. So now I've got a crush on Evangeline <laughs> Lilly. I've got a crush on Matthew Fox. And I've got a crush on Josh Holloway, right? All these characters on the show. But my biggest crush of them all was, Math- was Matthew Fox because oh, I'd wow. known him the longest. And I'd been, you know, I'd seen him since I was 14 years old. Well, of course, in the time that I'm visualizing being on the show, I was visualizing interacting with Matthew Fox and I'll leave your viewers imagination to (laughs) since 14 years old, how much imagination could have been involved with that. So when I show up the day that they called me in for that role, I had already played two characters. I had already played the character on at the airport and I'd already played my main character. And they called me one morning really early, the two, two casting directors. And they said, listen, we're in a, we're in a fix this actor isn't responding to his calls and he's needed for a really important scene today. And you're the only person that looks anything like him. You look close enough to him that we can cover it and make it seem like that's you. It's your character anyway. So will you come and work today as this third character? We promise it won't interfere with your other characters. So I said, sure. And I had no idea what I was going to be doing. I showed up (laughs) and they hooked me up with a stunt guy and they said, you need to talk to the stunt guy and he's going to tell you what's going on. And the stunt guy says nothing. He's like, oh, you're fine. You just walk into the temple, and when you get into the temple, this guy's going to get up, and you know, you'll know when, and you just charge him, and we're going to fight with him. And I was like, oh, thanks for the details. I feel <laughs> much more prepared now. Well, the really cool lesson of this was um, once I saw what was going on, I, I really got myself into that space. Like I was talking a little bit ago about you know, not being a giddy schoolgirl, right? right? Well, if there's a moment when I'm going to become a giddy schoolgirl, it's this moment. And as you can tell, <laughs> I am not very schoolgirlish. I'm sure. like, you know, not a stereotypical whatever we want to assign in our culture to what gay is. I'm, you know, I'm just a guy who thinks that the labels don't really work and I don't want to be that limited. Right. Sure. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I did my scene. I got to wrestle with Matthew Fox when they'd yell cut. You know, I wasn't really kind of letting go of him yet. I'd wait <laughs> until I got all the notes and then. Um, but it didn't turn, you know, it wasn't like anything big came out of it. I didn't, I didn't really get a chance to interpersonally communicate with Matthew or connect with him on any level. Right. We worked. It was professional. It was awesome. I thought I looked like a badass. Hey, right? that's all that matters. Hey, yeah, right. Well, now let's fast forward months later, and I'm watching the season premiere with a big group of friends and all my friends back home in Michigan. I'm living in Hawaii at the mm-hmm. time, and I'm from Michigan, so all my friends in Michigan, my family are all watching. People are calling me every five minutes. When are you going to show up? When are we going to see you? What do you look like? Did I miss you? I'm like, no, I'm, you'll see me. 
Well, it finally comes to the scene where, you know, I'm standing behind the guy with the glasses. I forget the character's name. And Dr. Jack stands up and he's like, oh, yeah. And I rush towards him. And me and the stunt guy get in a fight with Matthew Fox. Well, when you watch it, I look like a schoolgirl. <laughs> I just look like a schoolgirl. I seriously totally look like a schoolgirl. My leg kicks up behind me. I have no clue what I'm doing to fight. They didn't give me any training on how to push or fight him. You know, my experience with fighting is my sister beating me up when right. I was a little kid. So um, that was some awesome feedback. I got to learn that despite what I think I'm looking like, mm -hmm. uh, I might want to check in and practice in a mirror a little bit, really <laughs> which fun. I've done. Because I totally thought I looked like a villainous hero, monster, <laughs> whatever, right? And, um, and I looked like a schoolgirl. Very few of my friends caught that. I did get comments that I looked really scary and that I was mean and whatever. But to me, I'm like, oh, man, this is going to go down in infamy. <laughs> well, and before uh, I let you go, are there anything else you wanted to share about sort of your lost experience? Oh, you know, I, it was just a really awesome experience. And I would say, you know, more I would share. Um, I would share to how I came to be on Lost. And um, in that, you know, I found that as I deliberately take hold of what I imagine and how I imagine myself and what perspective I think about any of the circumstances I find myself in my life. Um, that if I position my attitude in a certain way, my attitudes can create any kind of result. I am a, I was lived in a trailer park in the Midwest. We were low, low middle class for a period of time. And rather other times than that, we weren't even on the lower middle class spectrum. Um, and yet I've been able to imagine myself into some of the most wonderful adventures and have lived a really, really prosperous life. So I'd recommend, you know, like take a look at um, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And you'll find that the concepts in that book are are throughout the Lost series and how our attitudes and our beliefs will bring circumstances back to us until we make a different choice in those circumstances and kind of learn the lesson. You know how the lessons come back to all the characters on Lost? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I found. And when I take a different attitude and I see myself in a different light, I'm able to rise up and have a lot more opportunities in front of me. So, you know, let's just, let's just grab the philosophy that's there in Lost and see if we can find a way to put it into use in our lives. In a, you know, so it's not just a show we watched once, but actually something that can impact us in a powerful way. And where can people check out your music? Like, what else? What else do you got going on? If people want yeah. to follow you uh, after this, uh, after this little chat, um, I've done a lot of TV. You can see me on some reality shows. Um, I was in The New Girl and Californication. Really, to check me out, um, Hunter Wade. If you go to hunterwade.com, H-U-N-T-E-R-W-A-D-E. And right now I have a new CD and some merchandise up at GoFundMe.com forward slash Wonderful World. It's GoFundMe.com forward slash Wonderful World. If you just Google Hunter Wade, though, it pulls up a bunch of my uh, antics and crazy things that I've done. I'm about to do another grassroots tour, and I might be playing in a living room near you. Awesome. All right, well, Hunter, super appreciate uh, the time. It was uh, awesome that you took uh, 20 minutes of, uh, of your day to, to chat with me about your experience on Lost. And I'm super jealous. Hey, it was what a, quite a pleasure. Be in touch. Thanks a lot. Awesome, man. Take care. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye now. <sighs> Uh, and thanks again uh, to Hunter for, for joining us. If you are also an extra on Lost, feel free <laughs> to reach out because I want to hear your weird stories about uh, being on the actual uh, island. So uh, thanks again to, to Hunter. We really appreciate his time. Um, cool. So let's uh, get into House of the Rising Sun. Um, generally, 
good episode? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is obviously a character episode. There is some island action, but there is not... This is not one with a whole lot of, of weirdness. In fact, actually, some of the stuff they touch on in terms of Locke and his faith in the island is is really sort of interesting. We can get there a little bit later because it's uh, a little bit deeper in uh, to the episode. But this is one where, you know, I didn't really care that much about what was happening on the island. I cared in so much as it related to how it was reflecting the relationship between uh, uh, Sun and Jin, but, you know, what's going on with Michael and what's going on with you know, Saeed and them starting to think about the caves as a permanent spot. Like, I just couldn't care less about that arc. Um, not because I didn't think it was interesting, but just because Jin and Sun are two really interesting characters. And it's the first time, uh, and I think this remains a, a theme throughout the series, where the flashback we get is with both characters. So there's just more going on, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't, the episode isn't weighted on just one character and their backstory. Like, these, you're kind of getting, you know, two for your money, uh, and, and that works really to the benefit because, you know, you have Son, who is obviously, you know, the daughter of this extremely wealthy, I guess you don't really, he's not a gangster, but he... Well, he doesn't start out as a gangster. So the flashback, so, so well, well, just to set Jin it up. Jin doesn't, yeah. Yeah, Jin doesn't. So just to set it up, so the flashback starts with, at sort of like a fancy party where, so Son's, son's at a, a fancy party and it's her father's party. And you first see Jin, and he's like a waiter at the party. And then yeah. they go and talk to each other in this like gazebo away from everyone. And you see that they're in love, and they have this relationship, but they don't really have son's father's approval to have the relationship. And um, when I was rewatching it, like I, it just struck me of like what a what a great you know. I was thinking about this episode, and I was thinking this is really the first episode of the season where there's not a crazy twist anywhere in the episode yeah there's really not a new mystery and there's not like a crazy twist but you know the twist and there is a big twist in this episode and it's the son and Jin relationship because you find out within like 30 seconds of that flashback starting that oh actually their relationship is the exact opposite of what you thought because it's set up as this total power dynamic where Jin is has all the power and all the authority and he's really controlling and son has no power and she's totally disempowered in this relationship and it turns out like 30 seconds in you see the complete opposite of that of like this is son's world and she has all the money and all the status and all the power at this party and Jin is a waiter and he has this secret relationship and he doesn't have doesn't have money have money have money, for money for a ring and he doesn't have money to travel and he has no flexibility in his life and he can't do the things that he wants to do so it's just this uh great Contrast, like I, I had such a great. I for, kind of forgot that that's how things started with Sun and Jin, um, and that that's how he got into that. That got sucked into that life as a gangster for Sun's father. Um, what a, that is such a great twist of like they've been setting these characters up to have this one relationship dynamic, and it turns out it's almost the exact opposite. I think what makes the twist, you know, if you even want to call it a twist, so powerful is that it's just it's actually rather normal right like after having what occurs with with Locke and then the weirdness of what's going on with you know Jack's you know father like appearing to him in these visions on the island I, you know this is very much it feels like an episode where they're like okay we need to pump the brakes things are getting really strange we need to ground people back again in mm-hmm. this world with characters and if you had these two in their background have some wild crazy thing 
that explained why they're on the island or how the relationship was, how it was. Like, it's a very relatable story. I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, getting involved in this, you know, like sort of gangster society that overlooks sort of like a factory is kind of the sense you get from what his his father uh, or son's father is involved in. Obviously, you know, it's it's a little out there, but not that out there. Like the idea of like marital strife and like power dynamics changing and someone having second thoughts about like that's all things that for the audience you can completely understand everything they're going through even if it's you know not exactly <laughs> that yeah your husband's it, not coming home covered in blood hopefully it's just such a change i think in how i'm watching the series between when i first saw it and now where it's like, I think I kind of wrote this episode off when I first saw it because I was like, nah, you don't see the the monster. Like, you don't really learn anything new about the mysteries of the island. Um, it's like, you know, let's go fast forward to the next this, week. This when would I be can if like, you're watching on, on Netflix and you were watching it for that purpose. Well, this is like when like, I saw boom, it, when boom, I saw boom. it the first time, right? I was like, I want to find out, you know, yeah. I want to find out why is there a polar bear on the island? And this episode is not telling me that. And thus, I don't care about it. But but watching it in retrospect, knowing that that for, at least for me, that stuff doesn't really pan out. Like I, I'm just kind of taking the time to like savor these character moments. And to me, like that is a much more delightful twist. This character relationship, um, and it's just such a great setup for for what's going on on the island because you you see how their lives are so dictated by money and status and rules and authority and and power and then they wind up on this island and there's none of that stuff right like the 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 conflict where that that almost immediately the episode starts off with on the island where you have Jin like beating the shit out of Michael seemingly for no reason that is one of the first I want to say that's like probably the first real like political problem maybe the water shortage counted but that's kind of the first political problem that these guys on the island have to deal with and it's just it's just such a contrast of like going from the society that's all rules based it's all class based it's all status based to the island where it's like what do you do when one guy flips out and you can't communicate with him like there are no procedures there are no laws like <laughs> yeah. you've got this pair of handcuffs there's no jail cell you have these handcuffs yeah. that you don't know how to take off like you'll figure it out later they don't have a key for these cuffs yeah but that's all they have available to them and they even get into a little bit of like when Saeed comes over uh, and Sawyer's you know at this point has restrained um Jin and he's like you know what happened what happened and you know Michael goes well you know how things are back in America you know like Koreans don't like black people so you get like this little bit of the sort of uh racial politics uh, that define where they came from, and that all of a sudden Michael is trying to bring that as though that is a rationale or a reason for why something would occur on the island. And then, of course, you get like a very quick moment afterwards where you know Michael's son uh, Walt asks, like, "Like, what do you what do you mean by that?" And then Michael is suddenly forced to confront the fact that, well, he was just dragging that stuff in because he was angry and wanted to to make a point. But yeah, you have this little society suddenly confronted with like a very real problem and like this is like what the show is great at like especially early in season one when it is just about when it happens the first time it's the most interesting yeah and and when this happens in this instance it is the height of and pretty much as far as they can take uh, Jin and son as oh the foreign couple yeah you know it's like they can't invoke this episode with having some not having some sort of resolution and obviously their resolution is that you know, you, you learn later that, that Sun can speak English, but, like, they really, I think, wring all they can out of the tension you would get 
from a bunch of people. You know, they're on this big island, but they're really all kind of caught in this one spot. And, like, what happens as people start to get desperate, which obviously plays into, you know, Jack's whole idea of, well, we should get the hell out of here. Um, so just to just to go through the rest of the flashback, so basically you see as um, Jin uh, kind of continues, like, courting Sun, he takes a job with Sun's father to get her approval, to get uh, so he kind of gives his approval for their marriage, he proposes to Sun, and presumably they get married, um, and then he clearly gets involved in some sort of crazy gangster stuff because he, like, comes home covered in blood and we don't have a good they don't give us a good sense of the timeline uh we get a a little bit of it when he gets the approval from uh son's father Uh, he says that i've got to work uh, one year in management training and then one year in the factory and then he says we'll have enough money to go do whatever we want and i think the implication from son's frustration is that it has been well over two years like the deadline has passed that Jin had set out uh, in in terms of when they were going to go establish their own life. Now Jin feels stuck. He is beholden to Sun's father and for whatever reason does not feel like he can escape. Maybe he feels like his life is threatened, but obviously if he's going to the lengths of beating the crap out of someone, he this is obviously, you know, a man to take really seriously even though the only real glimpse we get of Sun's father is a a quick uh, camera shot. We are not actually introduced to him uh, as a character in, in any sort of meaningful sense, but uh, in some ways, you know, you don't have to because it's implied this guy is a bad dude uh, not to be messed with. And obviously, uh, Jin takes that seriously enough that, you know, he's brought his marriage to the breaking point to the point where she's learning English and is ready to leave him. How does, I can't remember, what's the last thing you see about the, in their flashback? Is it just that you, you, the reveal that Sun is learning English? Um, I think the actual last uh, bit is when they are in the airport, um, and then she's looking over at the car that's okay. going to take her away. Um, do, you, do you know about the watch at that point? Mm, I'm not sure. It's it's around that. That's when everything's kind of coming together. Yeah, I imagine okay. that's kind of all happening at the uh, at that point. But that's when we're learning that obviously the reason she's on this island is because she she didn't leave him. Um, and, and 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 that's interesting because when you she gets there, the power dynamic flips again. Even though she hasn't revealed that she has an ace card, because in the episodes prior, Jin is constantly asserting his authority and constantly. Uh, saying, like, well, I'm in charge, I'm protecting you. You know, he's collecting the food. Um, when really, uh, Sun has all the power because at some point, you know right. she's going to have to. Uh, she has the far more important skill. On yeah, the which island is communication. Of, yeah, being able to talk to the group. And that's, that's probably a good bridge into, oh, well, we should probably talk about what happens with them on the island. So you see, so the, uh, what happens? So Jin beats up Michael and they handcuff him to the thing. And then eventually Sun goes to Michael and, and says uh, reveals that she can speak English. And then uh, she says, I need your help. And it tells him about the watch, uh, that, that it was Jin's watch and it was very important to him. It was, uh, I think, uh, uh, Sun's father's Do we watch. know? I'm trying to remember how much we... How much we do we, know that. Okay. We know okay. That, and, that, and that was the reason that he, okay, he went that it. far is because... That was about protecting the honor of. I mean, that, I mean, that's. I mean, I think that's to like underscore okay. how much Jin takes this so seriously. Is that on a random island where they have not necessarily a great chance of escape? Yeah, he will randomly beat the crap 
And if, any, if anything, that shows how brainwashed he has become and, and ingrained in this weird gangster lifestyle right. that he is now has an opportunity to escape, but you know, obviously has not quite grasped that yet. Um, yeah, and it, it led to like one of my favorite quotes in the whole first season. I, I'm I'm gonna guess, um, which is when Michael like throws the watch back at him and goes like, "Man, what do you even care about this watch for? Time doesn't matter here." <laughs> like. So good. It's just one of those great moments of like that it, whole interaction is yeah. unbelievably yeah. good. Like, yeah. Like Michael just menacingly holding this axe, screaming at him. And even though I knew that he wasn't gonna chop off his hand, like the way it's framed, like mm-hmm. the just like the fact that the camera's down below, so like just makes like like Michael into this like really uh, yeah. angry uh person. Uh, that that scene just has a lot of power in it. Yeah, I don't think this episode, um, although he is like the victim of of being beaten by Jin, I don't think this episode makes Michael out to be a great guy. And I think by by even the first time I was watching the series, like I was starting to get the impression that like yeah, Michael's Michael's probably not my favorite guy on the island. Um, so like first there's just that whole scene, like it's just uncomfortable. Like the dude is handcuffed and he's like standing over him with that axe, like. You know, it's like one thing to be a tough guy and stand up to someone who's beaten you, but another thing if he's like handcuffed and like dying of thirst, you know, on an island. <laughs> well, they showed like, like those couple of shots with his arm with the yeah. uh, the handcuffs, and the handcuff is clearly on like far too tight, like it's causing him to like chafe uncontrollably. Right. Like, it seems like Michael might be uh, overcompensating just a tad. Yeah, it was like it's like a little much, and I think the scene is written that way, and and it does a great job of like making, you know, it's again like inverting that power structure of like you you know between Michael and Jin, but also uh, um, you know the other great scene with Michael in this episode um, that's sort of part of that storyline is the conversation he has with Walt, where you sort of find out a little bit more about their relationship, and they don't really know each other that well, and you know as the adult where you're trying to like provide some sense of like security for your kid or whatever in this horrible situation, he should be like, I don't know. I just, it's like the the kid's like, what's my birthday? And instead of being like, Hey, I care about you. He's like, it's, it's like, yeah, it's the September 14th. What's my birthday. (laughs) Right. It makes the kid feel shitty. Like, it's just like I just get the impression from those two scenes. Like I'm like, boy, I don't, I don't like Walt that much. Like, or uh, Michael, uh, Michael that much. They, well, they yeah. just set him up as an, an extraordinarily weak character. Yeah, like he, he's constantly angry. Like he's always yelling. I mean, it's part of the reason where, like, you know, if you'd watch Lost at the time, the the Have you seen my boy? Where's my boy? Became like an early Lost meme because he's just aimless. Like obviously has not had a good grasp on what it's like to be a parent clearly. Cause you know, he just recently became a full-time parent and we'll, we're coming up to, you know, uh, a Michael episode uh, a little bit later in, in the season where we'll learn a little bit more about that. But yeah, they just kind of go out of their way to show that Michael just does not at all have his shit together, which, you know, even though they don't spend too much time on that, but the few scenes that they do do make you really want to know like what the hell for some reason his son was taken away from him and you know was that justified was that was that because he did something or was you know is a circumstance of him getting kind of screwed over but yeah as menacing as they make him through like the cinematography and the the way he acts at the end of the day your takeaway from that exchange is more that michael is the little man uh and and 
uh, Jin is pretty sympathetic yeah. at this point. Yeah, they. this is another great... Um, it's sort of a classic Lost thing of, like, in a single episode, um, you really go from kind of hating Jin. Like, he is really set up as a pretty bad... He's a dick. He, he's set up as kind of a bad dude. I mean, like, he, you know, he's doing the... You know, looking over at Sana and saying, hey, button up the one shirt. She's not even show, showing anything. Yeah. But he, he just asserts that much yeah. control Well, even Jana, when we watched the pilot, Jana was like, I want to burn that guy alive. I hate him. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool, like, flip in a single episode. They do make him into, into at least I feel, they, they make him into a very sympathetic character. And, I mean, obviously, you know, he's done some, some pretty horrible things, including, like, beating on Michael. But um, but for a noble, you know, yeah, not, you see, not necessarily. Yeah, you see where he's coming from, right? right? You see things from his point of view yeah. a little bit. Yeah, you, you, you know, you can understand what he's doing, even if you can't necessarily sympathize with the extremes he goes to but that's why the backstory is so great because it informs all that it gives you a a sense of the it's it's only 42 minutes which means that you know we're probably only getting you know 15 minutes that is actually related uh, to the the character of Jin himself Mm -hmm. but it completely paints a different picture of the power dynamic between Jin and Sun that makes everything make a ton more sense um yeah, the last thing I wrote down about just that storyline is I love when the initial fight is happening, when Jin is uh, beating Michael and sort of like holding him underwater, and and it is not looking good for Michael. It's I a love bru- it's a brutal fight scene too. Like, yeah, it is. You, it is the the the, the uh, when they do action in Lost in the first season when it's not cheesy where it's like Jack hanging off of the vine on the edge of the cliff or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's pretty. It is pretty brutal. Like that is as good a fight scene as I. I mean, I mean, you really get the sense that michael's like in peril from that beating. <laughs> yeah he got the he got the shit kicked out of him um but I, I just loved in that scene that you see sawyer and saeed come like just tear assing oh, down the beach to like sawyer like lunges like a tiger yeah and t- t- just, takes him, uh, takes him off his feet um but i just love that because like those are two characters who hate each other yeah and and i think that says something good about both of them that like their first instinct is to run towards that fight and and break it up um and then you know and they can't look to jack Right? Yep. Like there's gone. no yeah, there's no one there, and they both they both uh, they kind of pull it together, right? Like uh, Sawyer is uh, restraining uh, Jin, and he yells at uh, or no 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 uh, the other way around. Uh, Said is restraining Jin. He yells at Sawyer like the handcuffs from the marshal, and you know, they they kind of quickly in the face of this conflict, like they pretty quickly set aside their differences and they they handle it as competently and with as much communication as any characters ever handle anything in the course of the entire show <laughs> which is to say they lock him up and go i don't know we'll figure it out later <laughs> yeah well the overall plan's not good but they did work together pretty well on that, that terrible for as plan. much as they needed to do yeah because we'll get to it later in the episode is uh is was pretty great the other thing that's pretty great is uh so Jin uh, obviously at the end of the episode has uh, that handcuff uh, still around his wrist that is chafing him and uh too tight um <laughs> And that kind of becomes like a running uh, bit on uh, on the show, right? He's got that on his hand for I don't more rem- than I don't more than a season. How that's resolved? I think it's. We, this is the kind of thing we could look up, but I think it's in season two. Hmm. They they get access to this new thing in season two, and one of the we should be careful. Yeah. One of the new... It comes off at some point. Okay. One of the new things. Okay. Yeah, in season two. Okay, anyway. Um, and then you get the... Um, uh, I agree with you, the the more boring of the two stories, um, which is 
um, a sort of uh, expedition, uh, the same actually, like pretty much the same expedition from the pilot, which is uh, Jack, Kate, Charlie, and then now they're joined by uh, Locke, who's more of like kind of an active character in the show. They go off uh, looking for the water to try and bring water back to people. Um, and uh, they just, it feels like they have like a, like a good old-fashioned jungle adventure. Like they find some bodies in a cave. The bee thing is the just... The bodies in the cave, though, uh, uh, yeah, and then Charlie steps on a bee's God, nest. It's, and, it's, like, it's just a... It felt like such a forced, we need a, a piece of conflict to occur in the jungle. Like, yeah. I don't know, something's got to go wrong. This, and This felt like, if you remember from the show Bible, like all the like the weird ideas they had what of could like... happen. Yeah, what could happen in an episode. Like, yeah, maybe one week they'll step on some bees. Like, <laughs> it just felt like such a, a corny, like, island thing that could happen. And even the way it's shot, like, because they... Or clearly aren't doing a full body shot of Charlie. It's like there's there's an upper body shot where he's kind of got the bees on him, and there's a lower body shot that's it's just everything about it is just like it felt so completely forced when the it, arc of what's happening otherwise and what occurs between the characters is totally fine. It just yeah. felt like they they needed something else, and it was just a little too much. I do I do think that given enough care and attention they could have sold that B thing as like real peril so like in, a, in, an, in an alternate universe where there was a Breaking Bad episode where a character stepped on a hornet's nest they you know they'd film that thing in a way that like made your skin crawl like you would just be sitting there sweating terrified yeah. of the bees and the, and Lost just did not accomplish that like it was also it was really quickly it was like hey let's do this in five minutes it, and was, then move it on. was not that quick though it was a long they drew that out for a while like all the yeah. characters came out and Locke was like hey what's going on listen to me yeah and then and then of course like it ends in just the most like just one cringe after another so first Charlie's a, like a fucking idiot and he doesn't listen to Locke Locke <laughs> says to hold still and Charlie flips out and breaks the hive and then they all get chased by uh, CGI bees and uh, uh, Jack and Kate go tear their clothes off and uh, find some cool bodies in a cave some uh, some skeletons yeah the, the forced like well, I mean at this point like ah oh, you're just really forcing this Jack and Kate thing in a way that just, I just stop like you don't this is happening too fast and too much and just stop it's cringeworthy like also did you really have to make her take her shirt off again like you already did the thing with her b- bikini yeah. and like Ah, like I hate when the show does that uh, yeah. one too many times. But I did. Uh, I will say so. The the first time I saw this, I do that. The cave scene was another thing that stuck out to me. Um, so Jack pulls this like uh, kind of bag out from from one of the guys, the the bodies in the cave, from the pocket, and it's this like little satchel, and there's like a black stone and a white stone mm-hmm. in the satchel. And I just remember seeing that and thinking like, that's everything. Like once we once we crack that, we'll have the whole show. Yeah, and they and they became you know. Uh, sort of nicknamed as as Jack gives the nickname to them, Adam and Eve. And that was one of those early sort of, oh, yes, this explains everything about what's going on in the show. This is going to be utterly important. Like those rocks well, have I'm, to signify I something. The, yeah, I remember the fan theories of like, oh, it's like Jack at the island is back in time and it's the people in the cave are Jack and Kate and they're lying there and they're right, sending a was, message into yeah. the future with the like – do something with the stones and like it was like it got so convoluted but um, and also you had so little information right at that point about what what that even could mean but you know practically speaking what it implies to the characters at this point in time uh for what you you do know about the the world that they are inhabiting is that people have been here like that's what they're slowly teasing out is you have the french woman who's been you know had a transmission going for a number of years you have these two people who have been can't remember what jack actually 
says, but he implies that they've been dead for decades, like for, yeah. for a lengthy period of time. And well, so, they're, I mean, they're pretty decomposed. Yeah. Yeah. So they're setting the stage for this is not just an island where there has been one person. This is an island where there have been multiple people, and they've been here long enough to die, which I think to, to that then encourages Jack to really double down on this idea that, well, fuck it. Like, let's just live in these caves, I guess. Because um, he really accepts that premise rather quickly, uh, and it doesn't really seem uh, like that happens uh, for everyone else. That's actually one of the things that really bothers me is they don't really have the debate. It's just sort of Jack says we're going to live in the caves, and then obviously Kate's kind of okay with it. Uh, Saeed's not really okay with it. And they just kind of pepper over all of that, and then the end episode ends with like people being in the caves and people not being in the caves. Yeah, obviously there, sort of there's, there's, two there's groups, more that yeah. happens there, but I don't know. I, I felt you like know, just, that was Saeed something they could know that they found the bodies. I can't remember. Do people, how much is I doubt that? it. Because so that's I mean that's to me was always the, the the strongest argument for not going to the caves, which is like these people died here, like something you know this this is a place where the monster could get you, or it's like a it's a trap, or like I mean there's that would be a pretty compelling argument for me not to live in a place as if the first thing I found there was dead bodies, but uh, it's also a moment where the characters maybe aren't talking about as much of the weird stuff on this island right. as you would want them to, like right. Polar bears, weird monster. How come we aren't talking about? I guess I just wanted the show at that point to just have like a slight conversation about, hey guys, what's going on here? Yeah, and, and you don't well, really and, get and that. And the underlying, I mean, the underlying debate of why this matters to the people on the island is like, do you give up hope or not? Because yeah. to some extent, if you're going to go to those caves where you would never be seen from a passing by plane, or you would never know if anyone came by, you're in the shade and you're in the shelter. Um, you know, you're giving up hope of rescue, and uh, I think that's just one of the one of the things. Like I, I, I in in my version of Lost, there's a really well written, like great scene between Saeed and Jack where they sort of have that debate of like what is reasonable to survive versus like why bother to survive if you don't have any hope. Like you could, you know, you can imagine a great version of that scene that really gets at what must be in these people's heads and. Um, it's just, uh, I, I, I guess I would just say it seems like, like I, I guess I agree with you. It's a kind of a missed opportunity of like to, to draw that conflict out and really have that debate. Because instead they just sort of let the audience have it. Like how, what did, how would you feel about this? Right. Like they let the audience sort of project that onto the various characters who represent those viewpoints as opposed to it would have been nice if the show articulated that because, you know, you have that conversation between Jack and Locke where they start to lay out the man of science, man of faith. Like that's... a a point where they have a very particular conversation that lays out the different philosophies of these two characters that, you know, comes to bear multiple times in the show. And, and this was an early moment in the show where they could have done uh, something uh, similar to that. Um, but, but they, but they chose not to, I did like the stuff with Charlie and Locke though. Oh yeah. I forgot about that whole story. Yeah. So Locke, so there's, there's Which kind of the only thing we haven't great, talked about. Yeah. 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 At first there's that great conversation where Locke says to Charlie, I know what you're, I know what you're about. And you're like, Oh shit. He knows that he's an addict. He knows. And he's, he saw him holding the heroin and he goes, you were in that band, like, <laughs> which is like, how much more can you love Locke that he like knows the band? The, the, he also the knows both band. albums and yeah. has a preference and says that their original, their original yeah. album was a, was a strong, I think he calls it a stronger outing. Yeah. Just so great. Like that's a perfect moment of lost ratcheting up the drama and then just 
hitting you in the gut with just a really, really funny character moment. Yeah, and then you do get the satisfaction of that conversation because, you know, when that happens, you part of you does want to say, like, oh, shit, like, what if Locke did know that he was an addict? And then it turns out he does know that they have that confrontation later. And Locke kind of gives this very mysterious, like, if you give the, if you, the island wants you to stop uh, doing drugs, and if you give away your drugs by choice versus uh, uh, just, you know, running out, the island will give you your guitar back. And then, um, I don't know so much that the island gives the guitar back as Locke brings him to the guitar that he saw, but... Uh, well, that, that, I think that's, that's a really interesting instance of Locke using the exact same sort of pitch but manipulating a character to, you know, we don't quite know what to what end, but obviously he's using it to manipulate Charlie. You know, at at this point it seems in a positive direction of it would be nicer if Charlie was not addicted to heroin on this island probably. But this is not an actual case of, you know, if we, depending on how you feel about Jack's dad and, and the visions, whether that's something that's actually there by the island or it is Jack just, hallucinating from uh, pure exhaustion. Uh, Island did not bring this guitar here because Charlie did anything meaningful. Locke saw it standing there, then used this sort of island pitch that he has used on another character uh, to to get Charlie to to do something for him, which I I thought you're starting to see Locke be purposely manipulative, even if you're not sure to what end. Um... Should we, how are, how, what's our... We're 51, so we should probably... Yes, yeah, so we should wrap up. All yeah. right. Let me do the, uh, pull up the doc again. All right. All right. So, a uh, good episode of Lost. Next week, we are watching uh, The Moth, which is uh, the incredible story of Charlie uh, being in a band and being sad and uh, going through withdrawal. Uh, Wait, I have to, we have to do my trivia. Oh, we forgot the trivia. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. No, that's right. Um, all right. I think, uh, Patrick, did you pull some trivia for this episode? I did, yeah. Uh, so this comes uh, courtesy of Lostpedia. Um, so we pulled up just some random bits uh, of fun stuff. There is one in particular that made me laugh out loud at the end uh, when, when I got to it. Because it's also Lostpedia does, has, in addition to, to trivia, uh, has sort of like cut material that they've pieced together from – sort of like the commentaries and like scripts that appeared uh, uh, online. So there, there's some interesting stuff. Uh, this is uh, uh, Emile de, uh, de Raven Claire does not appear and is it's not good, credited. Good choice of how Emile to say that name. De- I was dreading. How, I was I'm so I'm not sure how to say it. Uh, I think yeah. I'm just going to go with never looking it up and then okay. just go with whatever my first instinct is. Okay. All right. Because I think I really butchered it that time. All right. Uh, does not appear and is not credited for the first of several times in season one, which is odd for a, rest, a regular cast member. I'm not sure her how that stuff works out. Um, this is the only episode of Lost not to feature any guest stars. This is the first episode to not feature every regular. Uh, and then... Who's, who's, not feature, who's not in this episode? I guess I... Uh, Boone, oh, Shannon, yeah, Boone, Rose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and then so this is um, stuff that was, uh, that was cut uh, in, in the script, I guess. Locke would have been... Uh, Locke would have referred to Charlie as Mr. Pace. Uh, familiarity that would have gone unexplained to Locke spoke of Charlie about drive shaft. Uh, the conversation about the band would have gone into more technical detail about Charlie's bass playing, <laughs> which I think is would also, I guess, I guess, been an inch, I guess, would imply that maybe Locke. 
played music. Yeah. Um, the two would have had an additional scene examining wreckage near the caves, and Charlie would have told Locke about his experiences with uh, the monster, uh, the polar bear, and the distress signal. The script would have explicitly described Locke as getting information by exploiting Charlie's weaknesses, which obviously we get wow. a sense of. So uh, what version of the script? Was this like the script that was written and the stuff was filmed and it was cut? I think so. I'd have to look up the specifics because uh, there's, you know, footnotes here in, in the bit that I pulled up, but I didn't uh, grab that necessarily. That is so interesting about Locke's character, that he was originally, instead of trying to help Charlie, trying to, like, manipulate him for information. Yeah. I mean, that's so not who I imagine Locke as being at this point in the series. Yeah, they definitely wait a little longer huh. before you start to get a... I mean, yeah, you get a little sense of that, but like the script makes it seem maybe uh, that they wanted to paint him in a different light uh, earlier uh, in the show. Uh, so here, here are two good ones. Uh, <laughs> Jack's tattoos appear on both his right and left arm during the montage at the end of the episode due to the episode using a mirror image from one of the shots. There you go. And this last one is you do is my, get you do get in the uh, first Jack and Kate scene you do have Kate making joke. fun of Jack for <laughs> the tattoos, and it's like I feel like they are setting it up as like finding out how Jack gets his tattoos, but never has lost posed a mystery that I wanted to know less than how Jack got. And his they waited tattoos. a long time to answer that one too. Uh, okay, and this is great. In the flashback where Jin and Son reconcile, uh, when he shows her a flower. Uh, at the airport, and she joins in the queue. The woman behind Sun clearly looks straight at the camera five different times. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go back and rewatch the scene now. Oh, that's like, so funny. She looks at the camera five times. That's an, you know, one time, okay, two times, fine. But to look at the camera five times, you are a bad extra. That I hope is... you're listening to this this show. I want you to tell me. And we want to interview you. Please email us at rewatchpodcast@gmail.com. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, so that's um, trivia for this week in uh, House of the Rising Sun. All right. So next week we are watching uh, The Moth. Um, do you remember The Moth being a good episode? <laughs> what I really like the description you wrote in the in the document. Do you want to read it? <laughs> See the incredible story of Charlie being sad in a band. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> Such a good episode. I love it. Do you, you, get any, so, you get so psyched for, for some of these character episodes. I do. I, I actually really like Charlie as a character, and I like a lot of his flashbacks. I do not like this one. Okay. I, I, feel, I remember this being a very frustrating, slow episode. Do you, do you remember this? Uh, I don't. Moth? I don't. Yeah, that's a bad sign. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, show notes for this episode and every episode are available at rewatchpodcast.com. Uh, you can email us your questions and comments at rewatchpodcast at gmail.com or at rewatchpodcast on Twitter, and uh, we'll read them on the show. We would love to hear what you guys think and uh, um, how you're finding the show and what you think we're doing. Um, as always, thank you to Steve Fabwash Kim for our work. Thanks to Dose One for our theme music. You can check out his work, including his ringtone of the month at doseone.com. Thanks to Lex Friedman and Midroll for hooking up our sponsorships. Thank you to MailChimp for sponsoring us. And thanks to all of you for listening uh, along. Um, please, uh, it, it's a huge help to us if you subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, I, I'm guessing a lot of people probably just uh, listen in the browser. Uh, listen on your iPhone, but if you uh, can go on iTunes and just add us as, as a subscription, it uh, really helps keep us up in the rankings. And also, if you've got a second, leave us a, a review on the podcast. If you like it, uh, just say that you like it. If you don't like it, uh, don't do anything. Um, and uh, stick around after the theme music. We will have uh, a little bit of spoiler talk that I'm very excited about. Patrick's been teasing this uh, all night. Uh, but we will see you next week for The Moth.
All right, I'm gonna do some spoiler chat. I've never been more excited. Yeah. So uh, now there's, you know, we I, we weren't gonna do spoiler chat. There wasn't anything that came up in this episode that I immediately I wanted to talk about. I didn't necessarily feel the need to dive into Adam and Eve and you know what we. I feel like the moment we get into that, then you're unpacking a whole lot about the show and specifically the sixth season. But uh, someone uh, got in touch with me and. Uh, I have to kind of keep it anonymous because I, okay, I've heard this a couple of times from various people that have reached out. It's like, oh, I want to connect you with someone uh, to chat with them about the show, but also don't don't say my name and publicize. Hollywood's weird about that stuff. I've gotten that like multiple times, so I don't know why Hollywood's so strange. But maybe you know, people take things personally. But anyway, so I'm going to keep this anonymous. But the way he set up the story sounded very genuine. It was so very specific in terms of why he would know this person and be in a situation to be talking to this person that this could all be complete bullshit, but I am going to take it at face value. It sounded authentic, and the weirdness of it is, is so worth talking about that we're just gonna we're just gonna roll with it. So in any case, our source <laughs> our our person yeah, on the inside. We have a source. <laughs> yeah. A uh, lost source. <laughs> had a chance to talk to David Fury, who was one of the, the principal writers in season one, uh, went on to write for uh, 24, uh, was involved in a lot of different shows. Um, and so he wrote uh, episodes, uh, th- this season of Lost, uh, season one, uh, four, nine, 14, and 18. Uh, so th- the context of this conversation, I guess, was uh, being critical of the first season uh, of Lost. Uh, I guess oh, wow, already... he wrote numbers. Yeah, so yeah, so... We uh, that's how the conversation started, and they started talking about the, sort of the first season in retrospect. So uh, I'll read uh, a bit of this uh, first paragraph, and then we'll, we'll get on uh, from there. But it says, uh, principally, uh, it started with the numbers, a concept David took credit for and claimed were complete nonsense, consisting of a random selection of numbers from family birthdays. Any importance imparted to the numbers after the fact were read into by fans or an invention of later writers. There was no formal plan for the numbers going forward. I completely... 100 and this is now me talking by that that is sounds absolutely what i would have expected from the show at that point the the numbers that are introduced alongside the the hatch are just nonsense and i think they found a slightly interesting way of explaining that in terms of the candidates but i i'm not surprised the numbers were just a mystery at that point uh and then uh our source goes on to say perhaps the most interesting thing he said was that the initial plan for the original season one finale was to reveal the passengers of Flight 815 were extraterrestrials. This was something the writers had decided upon halfway through writing season one and discussed avenues for said revelation. As the show progressed, the show gained in popularity and public discussions, especially on the internet, gained a critical mass. The writers were aware of the discussions and the overall negative reaction to the fan theory that the passengers were, in fact, aliens. When the, <laughs> theater, when the theory gained such strong negative momentum, they opted instead for a more ambiguous finale. David left after season one, so he had no insight into future seasons, but the one resounding refrain from him time after time was, there was no plan. This comes as no surprise, given now that it's widely known they didn't expect the show to continue behind the first season. Extraterrestrials? What kind of fucking fan theory was that? I wasn't on board with that. I can't remember ever hearing that. Was the extra? Tra- I mean, their theories—the big theories at the time—were that they were in the afterlife. Yes, the afterlife that theory they, that there was, was time travel. People already were. There was were, time were, travel. Yeah, people were suspecting the time travel with the finding the bodies and stuff. Um, but extraterrestrials—that's bizarre. 
why would they why would they be the extraterrestrials and have like the flashbacks? I guess it's possible that the crash would be like simu- maybe they were all just a Okay, I could buy maybe if they were abducted and then they were taken to an island where they were going to be experimented on like it was all like a psychological experiment. I could maybe buy that, but I don't I don't get how they would be extra Yeah, that's bizarre. I mean, maybe they, they there was some version of this story that was salvaged when they did the whole storyline of like they found the bodies. Do you remember that weird psych out? That was one of the things I was that in season three. Oh, the thing that's set up by uh, Widmore, where like right. Widmore stages a plane crash in underwater. That was such bullshit! I didn't like that whole. Ugh, I don't like anything. I, I, I get mad every time we do spoiler chat, but that whole thing, was, <laughs> that whole thing was such nonsense. I was like, I mean, at least they resolved it quickly, but like they just. I was just such it like didn't add anything to the larger story or the characters and the mystery or anything. It was just that it was just a cheap like that week they got to be like, whoa, what the fuck? They found the bodies like and then oh right, I remember because the I was is the way they reveal that where like they go down into the water and then they find the re- I'm trying to remember you see the you do see that at some point, but it's like no, it ends with like when the shit when someone new comes to the island and they're like no they found your bodies you're all dead oh so right, like right, very right. Directly... oh it's when everyone shows up in uh, like season four when we're introduced to faraday and is it because that'd be the first time there's people on the island no there was like oh maybe you're right that's the first outsiders is that the boat yeah not penny's boat because so... we're introduced to the boat at the end of season three. Oh, that's right okay we don't meet the characters until four okay that's right um how does the boat find the island? Isn't it like like there's the the the, the line that I, I actually always love this that of like you always wonder like why why doesn't a boat why aren't there more crashes or why doesn't and someone just stumble across them like an island that big like doesn't go undiscovered on the planet? Well, it like, moves. No, I understand that, but but like, but that's not satisfactory. Even if it was there for just a couple days at a time, someone would eventually someone would find it. But the, the, the well, you, I think it's I think it you would have to find it. It's no, not viewable some... by satellite imagery, right? Like, that's the what? whole reason that, like, that's the way Penny is finding it is through el- electromagnetism. Oh. Like, remember when there's the end of season two when the, the sort of, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the twist is Penny uh, looking for it in, like, an Arctic research station? So, mm-hmm. the re- yeah, it's, like, the, the rationale that come up, which, which I thought was satisfying enough, was that, yeah, it's not viewable on a satellite. Why? It they moves never say all the that. time. What? That it's not viewable on satellite. I think that's the implication. The island moves. Is that established? Yeah. Don't, the frozen donkey wheel, man. That moves the island? Yeah. Physical location. That's the whole reason when uh, later in the series when they go to – oh, what's her name? The old woman. Yeah. Yeah, And they yeah, go yeah, like yeah. – there's the, the that later wound up having nothing to do with anything and made no sense. The big uh, – they go into that like kind of secret room. There's the big like – clock thing that's like moving back oh, and forth and, that contra- she, that's and she right. explains yeah, that's, that's, right. and that's that's how, how the people the that are aware of the island are able to find the island when it moves i f- forget the yeah. actual explanation so there that. was that there was that great island of like when when hume is on the sailboat and he's trying to sail away from the island yes and oh like, my god and they're like why can't you why didn't you why weren't you able to get away and he's like it's like a bloody snow globe like that to me was was always the most satisfying explanation of like I didn't need more than that. Just tell me it's like a snow globe, and I'll imagine the the weird circumstances. But yeah. I found that very compelling. 
And I found that very sad. Well, it's sort of it was. It, but it, how? But there's something where they couldn't leave, right? Where the raft was just circling around the island, and it, it's yeah. like, like it's like there's something where they can't leave. I, I don't under, quite remember what it is, but like, how does the boat find them? That was always bugged me because like because well, they they uh, Widmore. I mean, the boat was sent by Widmore, and he. Has he's, the clock thing or the uh, pendulum he's, he's, thing? Yeah, or? I mean, we're yeah we're d- getting into murky. I don't remember specific details. Yeah. but he he's connected to all of that okay. stuff, which is you know that's why the the weird boat stuff at the bottom of the of the ocean. You're just supposed to imply it's implied that he's just so menacing that he's the only one that could pull something like that off. There was a I should pull up as long as we're here. Uh, someone had sent a pretty good a uh, one. Um, this comes from uh, Francis Keefe. Uh, Jacob was not trapped in the pixie dust cabin. That was a place where they could communicate with Jacob and not fear the man in black. The dust didn't keep Jacob in. It kept the man in black out. This is especially important because at that point in the series, because the man in black could look like anyone who was dead. Yeah, that that sounded that right, actually. That makes way more sense, and that's also why we couldn't really f- figure so it out. So where's Jacob when all this is happening? Uh, that's a good question. I don't remember. Uh, there's also, let's see if I can, Ashley King wrote a lengthy, um, email. I'm trying to figure out what would be the best part to pull out. Uh, oh, so, uh, she says, when the smoke monster scans people, he is searching their memories as well as their own ways to manipulate them. Further, I believe that when he scanned Locke, he not only saw Locke's past, but perhaps the memories he, Smokey, had of Locke from the island skipping through time in Season 5, which actually would sort of make sense. Right. Um, so he said, Ashley says, stay with me on this point because it gets weird. At some point in those time jumps, Smokey slash Locke, when they're both the same person, mm-hmm. tells Richard Alpert to go to an injured John Locke and tell him he will have to die to save the island. So I think that the time jumps might have left Smokey some knowledge or hint that Locke would be essential in turning off the heart of the island and therefore giving him the freedom to finally leave. And the heart of the island is a brilliant bright light in a magical cave of death, which is exactly how Locke describes what he saw when he looked into the heart of the island, which is a bright light, which is exactly which is at the heart of the island and explains all the magical gobbledygook that's going hmm. on. Which, okay, if you don't like the... Hmm. The magic light at the center of the island as a huh. mythology explanation, that's fine. It's sort of a convenient plot device for them. But that's sort of a neat way that you could look at. You know, that that gets into a little bit of, you know, ascribing maybe more intent yeah, than is actually there. there. But, yeah, but, I, but think, I, like I think it's a fun way of uh, finding explanations uh, based on the evidence at least you're given. Like, like That's what Lost didn't do enough, I think, sometimes was – or maybe f- fans got a little too obsessed with was – like, I think that's really fun. I don't think it would be nearly as enjoyable if the show laid that out for you, right? Like, if a character just explained that to you, you'd be like, oh, that's bullshit. They just no, but, but I, I want pe- I want to be able to make that connection myself. And, like, the signal-to-noise ratio is so high that it's impossible to, like, piece together the relevant... Yes. You know, no, you're definitely the, right. The, like, that, that's what's frustrating about it. It's not that there's not some good stuff there, because, like... When you pointed out the thing to me that, like, Jack's father was the smoke monster, that, like, blew my mind how neatly that fit together. But, like, it's just there's so many red herrings and so many twists and turns and the fucking, like, thing, I'm just thinking back now on that boat and all those boat characters that didn't matter and the guy who could talk to the dead and, like, 
was all like yeah and, the, and that, that, that that lady Eloise Hawking I that's mean, her name yeah like come on like she came and went and was unimportant and she could see the future at some points and other times she couldn't <laughs> and like it's just I don't the know future's it all unstable, just, man yeah it all just went nowhere all right now we're getting too negative so we're gonna stop this spoiler the end of the spoiler section and spoiler, spoiler chat and spoiler chat all right. <laughs> 